welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, we have a few things in store for you. We're back with Question of the Week. You must have missed it. And we have an interview with Dr. Jonathan Ye from Johns Hopkins Medical School. And he's going to talk about what happens when patients get discharged from the hospital from the oncology ward with a plan to go to subacute rehab and get fit for subsequent therapy. He'll be talking about that paper that appeared in the Journal of Oncology Practice later on this episode. And of course, the long-anticipated discussion of the Beacon study, encorafenib, binimetinib, and cetuximab for BRAF V600E mutated colorectal cancer. It is a chemotherapy-free regimen that's used in colorectal cancer, and it came out at ESMO 2019. And it is the talk of the town. And it's going to be the talk of this week's plenary session because I have turned to Twitter to criticize this study as the single worst reported randomized controlled trial I have ever read. And I'm going to tell you why it lives up to that billing. So stay tuned. You won't want to miss this. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. Okay, first up, it is the Beacon Trial. Triple targeted therapy. Here's the press release from MD Anderson. Its title goes like this. Triple targeted therapy improves survival for patients with advanced colorectal cancer and BRAF mutations. The three-drug combo of encorafenib, binimetinib, and cetuximab significantly improved OS. OS was a median of nine months in the combination arm compared to 5.4 months in the standard of care treatment. That's a difference of 3.6 months. And 3.6 months is bigger than 2.1 months, which is the average improvement in overall survival of a novel anti-cancer drug coming to market. So this is in fact been heralded as, quote, a study that builds on decades of research into the tumor biologies of BRAF mutated colorectal cancer and reflects a rational combination to address the vulnerabilities unique to this tumor. And this targeted therapy combination should be a new standard of care for this patient group, end quote. That 3.6-month benefit, it doesn't get any more impressive than that. Well, of course, if the trial didn't have many, many flaws, that might be something to talk about. But we're going to explore that on this episode. So, I have a few things to say about this trial. I'll try to read out my numbers. I believe there are 10 things to say about it. But first, before I go into the 10 things, I just want to say, this is the worst trial I have ever read. Whoever reviewed this study should be told that they will never again review for the New England Journal of Medicine. 
whoever was the editor and signed of this study should ask themselves if perhaps their enthusiasm for personalized and precision and targeted therapy has outstripped their ability to use their critical thinking skills and to ask very simple questions that readers would want to know. I think anyone who reviewed this study should have their conflicts investigated. Perhaps they had undisclosed conflicts because I do not understand how a paper of a randomized control trial of a pivotal drug combination could be so poorly reported and missing so much basic information. And I'm going to take you through that. But this is the worst trial I have ever read. Number one, we thank the patients and the families, as well as the participating trial teams, for making this trial possible. And you know who? J.D. Cox, Ph.D., from Mayville Medical Communications, from medical writing and editorial assistance with an earlier version of the manuscript. Thank you, medical writers. Because if it weren't for medical writers, we'd have to have doctors write their own papers, just as we have college students write their own papers. And if doctors wrote their own papers, they might actually include things that doctors would want to know, like basic things that I'm going to outline in this discussion, basic facts about the care of colorectal cancer that are omitted from this manuscript. And if those facts were reported, then other doctors who read the paper might conclude that this trial offered less than stellar results and that there were serious and perhaps even catastrophic limitations to this study. Two, as I read this trial, I read this in the methods section. We enrolled patients with histologically or cytologically confirmed metastatic colorectal cancer with a BRAF V600E mutation who had disease progression after one or two prior treatment regimens. Additional inclusion and exclusion criteria are provided in the trial protocol. So I said... Well, what are those additional IC and EC? In fact, you're not giving me anything else in the methods of the paper. That's an interesting point. When you read the methods of a paper, wouldn't you want to have a sense of who was included? Or would you want to be told to go pull up a 100-page-plus uh, protocol and sift through it to try to find the ECIC, the exclusion and inclusion criteria? Well, in this case, you'd be out of luck because number three, they're redacted. Redactions were in the protocol for what the secondary endpoints are. The protocol is redacted for the inclusion criteria. The protocol is redacted for the statistical plan. Even the section in how patients underwent BRAF testing has been redacted. Bill Barr got a hold of this manuscript and he didn't let much come through. And in fact, Analogous to Bill Barr, he put out the press release, which is all you really need to know about the study, and he left out all those thorny issues of the study that you don't want to talk too much about. It's a lot in common. And this is what happens when you want to manipulate the way in which people consume information. But when it comes to biomedicine, this is, I don't know what to say, this is unacceptable, this is shameful. If you're an investigator on this study and your name is on this paper, um, do you agree with this? That you are posting a protocol that is redacting all of the reasons the patients were included in your study, your inclusion criteria is being redacted, you're redacting your statistical analysis plan, are you comfortable with that? What, what, what type of science and medicine world are you living in where uh, the information as to who was enrolled in this study and what happened to them and how you judge success is somehow proprietary. That is a ludicrous thing to say. I've never seen anything like this. I've been tweeting about it for the last week. It is really unconscionable. Um, I think this deserves some deep scrutiny. And if you were a reviewer for this study, how did you not think to mention, hey, why are the authors of this study redacting this protocol so heavily? Why does this look like the Mueller report. Why doesn't this read like an actual clinical trial? So I say major problems for redaction. Number four, 
This is a randomized trial of, of course, uh, triplet therapy, benametinib, encorafenib, and cetuximab, or a doublet therapy, encorafenib, and cetuximab, or a control group. And that control group received either fulfiri plus cetuximab or irinotecan plus cetuximab. Okay. This is what it says in the paper. Patients in the control group received the investigator's choice of either cetuximab and arenotecan or cetuximab and fulfiri. That's what it got. That's what they gave patients. So your first question might be, what percent of patients received cetuximab plus irenotecan and what percent got cetuximab plus fulfiri? Those were the two investigator choices. So what did they choose? Was it 20%, 80%? Was it 40%, 60%? Or was it 50-50? And, and you would be disappointed to learn that in the entire paper, the entire supplement, and the entire protocol, nowhere does it actually say what percent got either of the two control group options. Number five. In this randomized control trial, we're testing whether or not a triplet or doublet is beneficial for people who have progressed on one line or two or more prior lines of therapy. And we want to know whether or not these novel, costly, targeted drugs that hit BRAF and upstream of it, EGFR mutation, are superior to a cytotoxic regimen and EGFR and an EGFR antibody. That's the clinical question. The primary endpoint of the study is overall survival. Overall survival, of course, depends on a few things, not just what was done on study, but also what was done before the study when these patients had metastatic cancer for the first time and they got their first line of treatment or the first and second line of treatment. Then it depends on what was done after the study. What did they go on to receive after they got done with this protocol? So you might have some questions. Um, Finally, it depends on how many of these patients initially presented with localized colon cancer, received adjuvant therapy, and had metastatic relapse versus how many presented with de novo stage 4 disease. These are all questions an oncologist would want to know about the paper. But nowhere in this paper does it say what percent of patients received adjuvant therapy. Nowhere in this paper does it say how long these patients had had a diagnosis of metastatic cancer prior to enrollment in this study. Of course, we know they live nine months and five months on therapy. We also know from prior studies that BRAF mutation V600 populations usually have a median survival of around 12 months. So it would be interesting to know how long they had survived prior to enrolling uh, on therapy to get a sense of whether or not these are average patients with BRAF V600 or atypical patients. For instance, you might learn the median survival prior to enrollment was 10 months or 12 months. So now you're talking about a population that had a median survival of, say, 17 months, even if they're on the control arm of this regimen. And that is beyond what we know from other studies, frontline studies, of the survival of BRAF V600. So you don't get a sense of who these people are because they're not telling you how long they had metastatic cancer prior to enrollment on this study. They're also not telling you what percent of these patients has previously received oxaliplatin or irinotecan. They're not telling you what the prior therapies were given to these patients. Those who received adjuvant, how many got 5-FU? How many got 5-FU and oxali? How many got Kpox? How many people got sapecitabine in the front line? How many people got oxali? They're not telling you what the post-protocol therapy is. How many people ended up getting regorafenib? If you're MSI high, how many people got nivolumab? They're not telling you anything about the chemotherapy given before this trial or after this trial. They're not telling you who these people are and what happened to them. And their primary endpoint is overall survival. So all of those factors matter. They're necessary to interpret this study. 
How on earth did reviewers review this study and not a single one of them ask, I wonder how many people got Xally Platin in the front line? And not a single one said the author should tell us how many people got Xally Platin. These are basic descriptive characteristics of the population that are being omitted from this paper. They are being redacted of sorts. They're not being included at all. It is a farce to call this a report of a trial when you're not giving us basic information. And I'll tell you later that all of that information will weigh in on interpreting these results. Number six. I believe it can be argued that the control arm here is is flawed. Cetuximab has no role in BRAF mutation colorectal cancer. Meta-analyses as early as 2015 showed in 263 patients uh, that there was no overall survival advantage when EGFR antibodies are added um, to patients with BRAF V600. And if you think about the EGFR downstream signaling pathway, this kind of makes sense. EGFR antibodies have been found to work in RAS wild-type populations and BRAF wild-type populations. But if you have downstream RAS or BRAF mutations that are downstream of EGFR signaling that are constitutively activating mutations, the benefit of EGFR antibodies appears to be lost. We've known that for a long time with RAS, and we've known that for a long time with BRAF. We know you should not be giving. There is no role for cetuximab in this disease population by itself. That's been well documented. And in fact, that's been codified in the NCCN guidelines to say, if you're BRAF V600, don't give cetuximab. so if you really wanted to flesh this out, you could have had a fourth arm of the study. After all, arms are easy to add in this study. Um, and that arm could have been just cytotoxic chemotherapy. It's even possible that cetuximab exerts a detrimental effect on survival in this population. A fourth arm might arguably also have included bevacizumab. Bevacizumab is a drug that has a study that shows subsequent line survival advantage that appeared in the Lancet Oncology. And that was not included as an acceptable control arm of this study. Number seven, well, 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 you can try. You can try to hide all you want behind your medical writers, but even the best medical writers make mistakes. They accidentally give readers information that they probably didn't intend on giving the readers. So I learned from reading this paper, and here I'm just going to talk about the triplet regimen arm, the encorafenib, binimetinib, and cetuximab arm versus the control arm of irinotecan-containing chemotherapy plus cetuximab. I learned from reading this study that 145 people plus 146 people in the other arm, so I'm just looking at these two arms, or 291 people had one prior line of therapy. They slipped up and they told that to me in table one. 291 people in these two arms had one prior line of therapy. I also learned that 78 and 76 or 154 people had two or more prior lines of therapy. So let me say what I've learned from table one. 291, one prior line of therapy. 154, two or more prior lines of therapy. It's a total of 445 patients in those two arms. But how many people got irinotecan? I learned from the subgroup analysis forest plot figure that prior irinotecan was given to 226 people and 219 people did not receive prior irinotecan. So that's 445 patients. Okay, so now they've given me 445 two ways. How many people had one prior line? How many people had two prior lines? How many people got irinotecan? How many people didn't get irinotecan? So the question can be answered. If you enrolled in this study after one prior line of therapy, what was the chance that that prior line of therapy include irinotecan? 
That would be crazy, of course, because it would be ludicrous for a doctor to give somebody full theory, perhaps with BAV, maybe without BAV, who knows, based on the locations that this trial is being run, who knows if they're doing that. But let's say they're giving you an irenotique and containing chemotherapy regimen, like full theory, and then they're randomizing you to a control arm where you receive more irenotecan, perhaps without ever seeing oxaliplatin. That would be absolutely ludicrous. That would be almost criminal. If you saw a fellow treating a patient with more irenotecan without giving the patient oxaliplatin, which is an active and life-prolonging medication in colon cancer, your head would explode in clinic. So hopefully this is not happening at all. Oh, but they've slipped up and given me these numbers so I can do some calculations. So let's assume that the 154 people who received two prior lines of therapy all got irenotecan. I mean, how could they not? How could you have gotten through two prior lines of therapy for metastatic colon cancer and not received irenotecan? You would have to have the world's worst oncologist to make that error. So I will assume that they all got that, the 154 people. But that leaves 72 additional people who received prior irenotecan who did not get two prior lines of therapy, who must have only gotten one prior line of therapy. And that's 72 divided by 291, the number of people who had one prior line of therapy, is 25%. So in other words, combining table one and the forest plot, which the authors probably didn't want you to do, we learn that 25% of the patients in this study who were randomized to an irenotecan-containing control arm after receiving only one prior line of therapy, are getting the exact same cytotoxic, that irenotecan, that they just progressed on, 25%. That is total madness. That is criminal. Because who would give a patient fulfiri and then more fulfiri cytox or fulfiri and then irenotecan cytox? That is ludicrous. Which brings me again to the control arm. Why is Fulfox Bev not the control arm for those who got Fulfiri Bev in the front line? And why is Fulfiri Bev not the control arm for those who got Fulfox Bev in the front line? Why, why is that not the trial? And if you really wanted to test this novel regimen, uh, why not initially do it in the third line and beyond and then try to move it up forward? I mean, obviously the authors, um, they're playing a game here. They want to capture market share. And they are playing a game in which they are going probably predominantly to Europe where oxaliplatin is not used in the front line and then randomizing people to this straw man control arm where you give more irenotecan and not let them have a chance of having oxaliplatin so that you tank your control arm so that your triplet looks good in comparison. Um, and by good, it gives you that 3.6-month median survival advantage. Uh, so who knows how it would look if you actually had a real control arm. And a real control arm here would be um, to allow oxaliplatin if somebody had never had oxaliplatin, and it would be to have bevacizumab containing control arms rather than cetuximab, because we know cetuximab is not active or useful in this disease and likely can only bring harm. And why do the authors not do the initial study in the third line? Because obviously the authors probably want to capture a larger market share, and they're comfortable playing this game, going to Europe, a place where they know people got irenotecan, and giving them more irenotecan, which is a straw man control arm. And that's probably why they have a 2% response rate in the control arm. Number eight, one of the authors of this study admitted that prior receipt of oxaliplatin was not mandated per protocol on Twitter. So what have I found out through my sleuthing? Although this is a limited manuscript that doesn't report things well, I have learned that among patients who enroll with one prior line of therapy, probably one in four are getting the exact same cytotoxic drug they got before. And that's not because we don't have other cytotoxic drugs. We do. We have oxaliplatin. Um, if you have a patient in your clinic 
um, the right way to treat a BRAF V600 patient is full Fox BEV or full Fury BEV, and then full Fury BEV or full Fox BEV, the opposite one. Those are the right two regimens. And in this trial, you have a convoluted trial design that prevents people from getting the best available standard of care therapy, and thus it is likely not applicable to the United States of America. Number 10. The authors had this in their protocol. A number of therapeutic options are available following progression of initial therapy for metastatic colorectal cancer. The combination of cetuximab plus irinotecan is one of the options recommended by the NCCN for patients who have received prior irinotecan or oxaliplatin regimens, and, is, and its use in this setting is consistent with current labeling of cetuximab. They're very slippery. They're saying that, the, that irinocetuximab is one of the options recommended by the NCCN, but cetuximab is consistent with current labeling. What they're not saying is that cetuximab is consistent with NCCN guidelines because it is not because the NCCN has stated that for BRAF V600, you should not give cetuximab. So for one, they're looking at the label, but for the other, they're looking at the NCCN flowchart. Bravo, you've, you've thread the needle just right. The use of fulfiri is consistent with the ESMO guidelines, which recommend the use of cytotoxic doublets containing 5-FU and EGFR inhibitor in patients with metastatic colorectal cancer, which is RAS wild type, whose disease has progressed on one prior regimen. And that's only because they're not up to date to reflect the knowledge of BREF V600. Uh, and you don't cite the fact that NCCN says don't give cetuxin BREF V600. Wow. So you really are playing a slippery game. And all that so you can eke out a 3.6-month survival advantage. Now, let's imagine if these patients were treated properly. One, if they actually reported how many people got adjuvant oxaliplatin, um, which is a consideration in giving frontline oxaliplatin based on how quickly they recur after adjuvant therapy, but they don't provide that at all in this manuscript. But that point, I think, is moot because if you are receiving irinotecan in the frontline, you must have gotten adjuvant oxali prior. And if you progress... Nobody on earth who's sensible, who has access to both medications, would give you more irinotecan, the drug you immediately progressed on. Everyone will be reaching for oxaliplatin, so even that would be a moot point. Why is this trial disgraceful? This is the worst reporting I have ever seen in a clinical trial. Basic information is not given. What percent got irinotecan cetux? What percent got fulfiri cetux? That's the investigator choice. It doesn't say what percent. What percent has previously received adjuvant therapy? How many people got Sapox? How many people got Fulfox? And how many cycles did they receive? It doesn't say at any point in the paper. If you relapsed after adjuvant therapy, how long before you relapsed? If you had de novo metastatic therapy, how long had you had that diagnosis before enrolling on this study? What percent of patients in frontline metastatic cancer got Fulfox, Fulfiri, or other regimens? What did that breakdown look like? And then when you progress post-protocol, what were the regimens given? How many people got regorafenib? How many people got Lonsurf? For the 7 or 8% of people that are MSI high, how many people got nivolumab? All of this information is not provided. Not to mention, the control arm does not contain BEV, which is the only sensible choice for BRAF V600. So this is the worst reporting I have ever seen. Basic information is not given. I had to be a Columbo to figure out the fact that 25% of people being treated on this protocol have immediately progressed on irinotecan. That's the only way the numbers make sense to me. Um, giving irinotecan again to people who have not gotten oxaliplatin, shame on you. Redacting the protocol, that's so shameful for academics to put forward. I don't know how anyone in good conscience can provide a redacted protocol for endpoints, secondary endpoints for inclusion criteria. The control arm is, is purposely chosen to be a bad control arm, and the fact that they're not going in the third line but going in the second line as well is overreaching for large market share. This is a terrible trial. This is, this is what we can expect in the future. Um, the, ma the published manuscript it provides 
little more than a press release. Um, it fails to answer basic questions about who these people were entering the study and what happened to them after the study. And overall survival cannot be your primary endpoint if you do not provide this information for readers to understand if your post-protocol therapy was acceptable. You could have had lousy post-protocol therapy in one arm that's disproportionate to the other arm and that could have driven the result. You don't know. The last point I'd make. I'm going to come back to this in a future episode when I revisit Flora study, but people say that, you know, these are the compromises that need to be made for international trials. Um, international registration trials are a lie. I mean, we, it's the most dishonest thing I've ever heard. Um, these trials are being done to gain access to one market more than other markets. That's the U.S. market. The U.S. market pays more for cancer drugs than all other markets combined. And the premium we pay more than other markets is enough to engulf the entire global R&D budget. These trials are being done to gain access to the US market. They are international because companies know by going internationally, they can get away with giving someone irinotecan twice. If they did that in the US, even the investigators on this study, who may have been to array uh, pharmaceutical consulting dinners, even they would feel some shame and may not want to do that and think, God, I can't give this person Irene Otikin again. I got to give him oxaliplatin. That's the only sensible thing to do. Um, so they have to go globally where oxaliplatin may be difficult to get, um, where Bev may be difficult to get so they can get away with um, giving them cetuximab and not Bev. Um, where investigators may be more willing to give somebody Irene Otikin twice. Um, and, and it's dishonest in the sense that these drugs are, are not going to be priced on the market so that they're truly international drugs. Many of these nations may struggle to even give bevacizumab um, for patients with colon cancer in first and second line of therapy. Many of these nations may not be giving nivolumab for MSI high colon cancer uh, for multiply relapsed colon cancer. Um, these nations will certainly not be able to afford encorafenib, binimetinib, and cetuximab, which is likely to be a $200,000 plus uh, per year regimen. Um, it's a farce. They're international trials because they are done internationally to get away with straw man control arms. Um, we needed to do an international trial is, is like a fellow interviewing, say they want to go into academic medicine. Uh, we all know that most do not, and yet uh, we entertain the delusion. Um, and similarly, uh, we know that these trials are really seeking U.S. market share. They're done globally so they can accrue fast and so they can get away with uh, design flaws. In this case, I am unable to tell you all of the design flaws because the author's and their medical writers have concealed it. They've concealed it in two ways. One, by literally pouring black ink on the protocol so I cannot read it. And two, by not providing you even the most basic information that even the most basic person would want to provide. All right. So final thoughts. If you publish a second and third line colon cancer randomized control trial and you do not tell me what percent of people got adjuvant therapy, what adjuvant therapy they got, when they relapsed, how long before they relapsed? Among the people with metastatic disease, how long had they had metastatic disease before they enrolled on your study? What percent of people previously got full fox, full fury in the front line? What were the regimens given after your study? If you're not going to tell me any of that information, why are you even writing a paper? This is not a paper. This is a leaflet. Um, whose job is it to make sure this information is in the paper? Well, it's really 
somewhat the job of the authors. They should feel some disgrace um, for allowing a redacted manuscript to be put forth in a, in a farce of a paper. Um, but it's really the job of the reviewers. Um, their job is to read the paper, to use uh, the neurons that are residing in their brain um, to think. And in thinking, they might say, hmm, I wonder how many people are getting full theory and then being randomized to more Irene Otikan without ever having seen Oxaliplatin. That would be ludicrous if that was happening. So I wonder how many people that's happening in. So why don't the authors tell me explicitly how many people got Oxaliplatin prior to this study? It's the reviewer's job to ask those questions. They're not asking those questions here. So I can only suspect that these are bad reviewers. The reviewers are not reading this the way a critic is reading this. They're reading this the way a cheerleader is reading this, saying that, oh, finally, a chemotherapy-free option. And it's chemotherapy-free, i.e. it is not cytotoxic chemotherapy, but it is not chemotherapy-free, i.e. the toxicity is good. In fact, the manuscript says, the most common adverse events in the triplet therapy group were the GI-related and skin-related events, including diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, acneiform dermatitis, low hemoglobin level, or anemia was a common laboratory abnormality. So in other words, it's got a lot of side effects like chemotherapy. It may not be chemotherapy, cytotoxic chemotherapy, but it's not a pleasure to take these drugs. So the reviewers failed, clearly. The editor failed miserably. The likely deputy editor of hematology oncology at the New England Journal of Medicine, who has shown in editorial after editorial a unyielding love affair of targeted therapy, is reading this manuscript in a superficial uh, way, not asking any legitimate questions and not providing any of the information that any colorectal cancer treating doctor would want to know to compare this trial against their clinical experience and against what would have been done in their trial. Um, this editor failed. This is a huge failure. Um, editors fail and reviewers fail. And the journal increasingly shifts its focus from disseminating scientific information with the goal of empowering readers and doctors and patients to make good choices to disseminating press release material with the goal of lobbying for regulatory approval and capturing market share. The journal has flipped. The journal now caters to the needs and wants of companies which buy reprints, perhaps in the millions of dollars, and authors whose careers are propelled by these kinds of publications. And the journal does not seem to care about the needs and desires of patients and doctors in the community. And that has increasingly been the shift of the journal uh, since Jerome Kasserer and Marsha Angel departed, um, now nearly 20 years ago. I hope that going forward with a new editor, we will see some better editorial standards. So, you know, if somebody wants to write a letter to the editor to this journal, it would be difficult to fit it in the 150-word requirement for the journal because you'd say, look, uh, usually you have to have that obligatory, I commend the authors for doing a wonderful study. Um, here, I wouldn't even have the heart to say that. I would just say, look, there's some info you need to tell us, like what were the treatments these people got before this study and what were the treatments they got after this study and how long had these people had metastatic disease and how many people got adjuvant therapy? Basically, all of those things that any basic publication would have reported in the original manuscript, why don't you provide at this late date? And then in their reply, they might shirk some of those things or come up with some reason why um, it's still good enough. Um, but it's not good enough. And the clue I have is that 25% of people in this study must have gotten Irenotecan in the front line, and they're getting Irenotecan immediately thereafter, and that makes no sense, and it's not what people would do. So I suspect there are probably deeper flaws of this study if we had access to more data. On that positive note, the beacon has been raised for a new pinnacle 
of obfuscation in trial result reporting. Thank you, Beacon. You're the Beacon. All others shall look to you to provide a manuscript that tells readers as little as humanly possible while extolling the press release. Thank you, Beacon. I commend you. And on that positive note, we turn to question of the week. Okay, I'm back with Audrey Tran and this week's question from a medical student. This is the segment of the podcast where we take a question from Audrey Tran, who is a medical student here at OHSU and asks very, very difficult questions. I think by now, (laughs) listeners have seen these questions are very difficult and I've done a lousy job answering them. And, and, And I always add the disclaimer from questions from a medical student that this is just the opinion of one opinionated person, which is me. And if you want to really get a sense of what people think about this issue, you should ask such a question to many, many faculty and average the results. In fact, that's something I like to do in my in my free time. Audrey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, Audrey, uh, give me an easy one this week. All right, I okay, <laughs> softball, softball. Give me a softball, right. I can't okay. take anything. Right. Okay, all right, this, this one I think is, um, I think it's a reasonable one. I think it would warrant good discussion. If you could create the perfect medical school curriculum, what would it look like? And I guess you can be as specific as you'd like, but what are the core things you think that someone should have first day of residency? Wow, that is a good question. I guess what I would say is, I I wanna start by acknowledging one thing at the outset, which is I think that um, people go to medical school for different reasons and people have different goals and people end up in different careers. What are the range of things people do and what is like the descending order of frequency with which people do those things? So I would say number one, like the most common thing people do is deliver clinical care day in and day out. Probably, I don't know, 60, 70, 80% of all medical school graduates, be that from Harvard Medical School or University of Missouri, they see patients primarily. I mean, there's a huge fraction of people who become clinicians. That's great. There are a few people who may become doctorpreneurs. That's an entrepreneur who's a doctor. Somehow, somehow better than a mere entrepreneur. That's a doctorpreneur. Then there are people who become, you know, laboratory scientists, you know, running their labs. There are people who may dabble in health policy. There are people who want to be medical educators. There are people who um, want to do a law degree and then maybe go into, I don't know, IP law or corporate law or malpractice law. I don't know what they wanted. And then the other thing that people end up doing is some people become doctor novelists, uh, like um, Abraham Verghese. Mm-hmm. Oliver Sacks. Oliver Sacks. Although I guess he less of a novel, nonfiction yeah, writer, non-fiction. taking advantage of his patient stories and broadcasting them widely. <laughs> didn't know how to keep his didn't know how to keep his <laughs> mouth shut, did he? <laughs> Oliver Sacks. He he's a he's a HIPAA violation, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I don't know. But anyway, we'll talk about him another day. Okay, so I was back to saying this. So I think that when you think about it, the goal of medical school is we have to acknowledge that there is no way to have one size fits all curriculum for all of these diverse paths. Like you're just not gonna be able to do that. Somebody might be Sid Mukherjee, somebody might be a laboratory person, somebody might go be the president of Novartis. There's no one path that can prepare everyone for these huge diverse careers. So I think what the core of medical training has to do, the core curriculum has to prepare people for the average or expected or most common outcome, which in this case is probably seeing patients. So I think like the core courses have to make you really, really good at the most common destination outcome. 
And then I, I think there should also be some elective time so that anyone interested in, in, in everything from being a doctor, novelist, to being the president of a pharmaceutical company, to being a laboratory person, they should also have an opportunity to spend some time if they know early on that that's what they're interested in to kind of dip a toe, dip a foot in that pond. Um, Okay, so then the question becomes, well, what does it take to prepare a really good doctor, like a person seeing patients? What should the core curriculum look like? And I guess I would say that Adam Sifu and I, we've written a lot about this over the years. In one of, in our book, Ending Medical Reversal, we have a whole chapter on how do you redesign the medical curriculum. And we did that with this in mind. And I think some of the things we think are problematic in the current system is, well, one, the prerequisites. I don't think it makes sense that you have to do a year of physics and calculus. Um, I don't think that makes sense. I don't think making you do organic chemistry and going to organic chemistry lab and um, extracting <laughs> caffeine from a tea bag, which is what I had to do, and I think what many people had to do. Did you have to do something like that? I, mm, I think we were made. We usually synthesize things, and then it was always such a low yield that it always felt very uh, wasteful, fruitless. Yes, <laughs> yeah, fruit. so it was like a five percent yield of a five percent yield. And yeah, there's like this like little little drop in the drop thing. of something and then you put in the mass spec just to make sure you got what you thought it did exactly yeah yeah, yeah we did that and I, I don't think that has anything to do with being a good doctor and it's really quite irrelevant and just i think exposes a bunch of pre-meds to organic solvents and chemicals that really serve <laughs> no value i mean probably from a strict health point of view it's probably a net negative <laughs> anyway so I, I would i would delete all that i mean i think what you need to know going into medical school should be perhaps some exposure to science classes some exposure to um maybe a little bit of statistics, if anything, rather than um, calculus statistics, of course, being used far more often. But I think the prerequisites should probably be fewer um, rather than more. Then when you get into medical school, um, you know, we think that the sooner you can get a person in the clinic seeing patients, that kind of activity, the better. Um, right now in our medical training, you do a year, a year and a half, two years of preparing for a foolish, misguided, useless examination called step one, where say, for instance, you need to memorize all the different types of isoforms of RNA polymerase. Uh, do you, you do know that? Because you've just taken step one recently. Oh, yes. Uh, one, two, and three. Yeah. So you know your RNA polymerases. Yeah. Let but me tell I mean, you something. Yeah, yeah, sure. You'll never need to. No, I mean, as a <laughs> clinician, you will never need. I, I don't know them and I don't need to know. No, but I think that. I mean, you you have some interest in the laboratory, so it might interest you in the future. But I think for like the average person practicing, that's a real waste of time. We need to get them to focus on, you know, what actually matters. So I wrote a paper in 2010 called the Encounter-Based Curriculum, and it talks about sort of a theory of medical education where we start with the patient encounter. And maybe the first book you read in a patient encounter curriculum class is something like Symptom Diagnosis, which is by many of my old professors, Scott Stern, Diane Alcorn, and, and Adam Sifu, which is just a great book, which has the 20 to 40 most common concerns patients come with to the doctor's office from, I have a headache, or my stomach hurts, or um, you know, I have shortness of breath. And the book takes you through, these are the kinds of things people see doctors with these concerns. What are the tests that tease out the possible diagnoses? And what can you do about it? Um, and so that's like this, the starting point. And from there, you start to wonder, well, what are the possible diagnoses? And then I think you need a really good clinical pathophysiology kind of course, sort of a, a clinically oriented course of the ways in which the body works and the, the ways it commonly breaks. And the interesting thing about the body, I think, is you know, learning how things work perfectly, it doesn't always let you predict how things break. Sometimes things break in certain studied and predictable patterns 
that are not always all the ways things could break. There's like an infinite way in which the body could fail, but it tends to fail in like, you know, 500,000 predictable ways, you know, that kind of thing. It's actually kind of interesting why it doesn't fail in the ways it doesn't fail, but that's a whole other can <laughs> of worms. So in our book, we talk about, you know, we, ha we imagine the first year of medical training, and this was just one proposal, um, you know, first maybe a five, six week course in human anatomy, a very quick course where you cover some basics, but you're not expected to memorize every nitty gritty thing because you're not gonna be able to remember that. Then we thrust you right into the patient encounter class where you deal with what are these kind of concerns that people come with, how do you work through that, how do you think about that? The courses that go with that are finding and understanding medical trials, medical statistics, clinical reasoning, medical decision-making, and medical ethics. We have some space in the curriculum for the human body and health, which is that more traditional pathophysiology basic science courses. And then maybe we end the year with kind of a little in-depth delve into pathophysiology. And and that's really it. We don't want to spend. We don't want to make you waste time memorizing the Krebs cycle or getting too much into the basic sciences because you can go really deep on those. Um, then we hope to get people into the core clinical rotations. So, one a mentored clinical decision making course that runs throughout the year, and then courses in psychiatry, emergency medicine, family medicine, general medicine, internal medicine, um, surgery, pediatrics, OBGYN, neurology, radiology, and then maybe some time if you want to do plastic surgery or neurosurgery or radonc. The more we can put you in the clinic and let the questions start from the point of view of the doctor patient encounter, I think the more interesting medical education will be and maybe the more rewarding it'll be and the more relevant it'll be to what you end up doing. And then in the last you know, 12 months to 18 months, because in my perfect world, we may even be able to shorten it by a year, I think that's where we give a lot of elective time. You can focus on the basic sciences in medicine if you want to be a laboratory researcher. You could do acting internships in, say, orthopedics if you want to be an orthopod. Um, you can do some translational classes, or you can do electives in what matters to you from, you know, how do you become an Oliver Sacks and breach your patient's confidence in, in book form, or, or I don't know, you know, something like that. I mean, you can, you know, you can think about, you know, all these other kind of, um, you know, things you want to do, uh, different life paths in that year. Mm-hmm. But for somebody who really wants to be a physician scientist, I think they're going to have to step up a lot more. They might do a three-year medical curriculum and then do two, three years in the lab right then before mm -hmm. residency. Then they might do residency and fellowship. And their fellowship, they might do a clinical year. And then they might, again, be in the lab for two more years and maybe even postdoc for a few more years. I think mm -hmm. they have more to prove. And, um, and they should be able to have flexibility in their curriculum to prove it. Um, for those of us who mostly see patients, and I put myself in that category, um, I think that it's interesting how much of the, I mean, I'll put it this way. I spent a decade in training, four years of medical school and six years of post-medical training. And I would say that like many of those years were spent on things that are not needed for my current job. And they're things that are needed for my current job that weren't emphasized and weren't covered and weren't stressed. And those were things that luckily I found many of those things in my MPH year mm -hmm. through epidemiology and statistics classes um, that are much more relevant for like the day-to-day -day being a doctor and thinking about clinical studies. And then there are also things that you learn the hard way, which is by shadowing people in your free time or even now as a faculty member, finding somebody and picking their brain for an hour to learn about something that I thought I knew but I don't really grasp. You know, for me, I always have to remind myself about all the von Willebrands, um, you know, yes, all the types the and types. yes, all mm -hmm. the types and the clinical relevance. And, you know, there's certain areas that we we always um, want to keep polishing up. 
and it would have been nice that instead of memorizing the Krebs cycle, which I think is useless, and uh, even if and if a listener if a listener writes in and says you're a leukemia doctor, you know you see patients with leukemia and you prescribe IDH inhibitors, so it's not useless. Okay, that is n- by no means should everyone have to learn the Krebs cycle because we've got a couple IDH inhibitors. That makes no sense at all. Okay, so I hope that's just my two cents on this matter. Yeah, I, I guess I would say that what is interesting is to me it's just a shift in mindset or the shift in thinking because the reason why going back to the orgo lab that we all did and kind of went through and rite of passage and whatnot it was another way to confirm and doubly confirm and be very very sure that what you saw visually or what you experienced was truly happening on like a molecular level and as difficult as it was to see relevance it i think it instilled just even also like the basic research training of like are you sure that this is what you are thinking and like you had all the time in the world i think to kind of prove or demonstrate that you know you could run a control you could have all these different things that like knocked out every step Mm -hmm. to make sure that this step didn't skew i guess the results and therefore your interpretation that a that there is some sort of effect of this drug on this cancer cell line or stem cell line or something like that truly is due to the drug and not all these other conditions but you had weeks you had like unlimited amount of time to do this sort of investigative work which i think is a really important skill set to have that sort of determination a to like think of all the ways it could be wrong and prove that it isn't you know that those controls and then secondly that you know you had the determination to kind of again create this perfect sterile environment and I think what I'm learning, though, in medicine is I don't have all this time. You know, I, I don't get to there, there is there is this time element, this factor of someone who's looking right at me and at wanting a response right now mm-hmm. or and maybe we can't always give the, the answer right now. But then you have to figure out a way to artfully say, like, OK, this is the best of my knowledge as to what I know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, making sure that the patient's on board and creating a partnership and and all these sorts of good things that deal with the humility of the fact that I think sometimes we will never know as definitively as we think we did. I mean, at least in medicine, I thought that the diagnosis was always surefire. Absolutely. Yeah. Here's the prescription. See you later. Right. And that's, you know, many, many years. It's much grayer than that. It's much grayer than that. And it's, and it, and it happens on such a different timescale, which is to say acutely and quickly. Yeah. And even, even, even the long-term like longitudinal relationships, like I'm sure in the lymphoma clinic too, like even mm-hmm. then you always have to deal with that uncertainty yeah. and you have to grapple with it a little bit. I think you've introduced like two ideas I want to touch on. So the first idea you introduce is like many smart people who are good students. I think you see the silver lining in Orgo, which is that one, it makes you think about all the inputs and what input might have been awry. Um, two, it teaches you patience and, and the ability to take something through this task. And I guess what I would say is I think it's I think those things are true. You can learn those skills from Orgo. But I think it's interesting that in my particular case, I felt like I learned those skills in like philosophy class. Mm-hmm. So you see an argument structure that's, you know, you're trying yeah. to summarize something that Aristotle wrote. And Aristotle has, you know, he's comes to this conclusion and he's got these premises. And then you start to think to yourself, well, does he need all the premises? Are they all essential for the conclusion? What could be dropped? What could be different? You start to write papers and make arguments and you can see that people are better and worse at it. And then, you know, you can take formal classes in logic and there's some really good logical classes where you literally say what is necessary and sufficient and mm-hmm. what is a counterfactual and what is a contrapositive and you learn these kind of terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting though because I think that, I mean, 
I think that you're right that that skill is useful, but I, I, I do wonder in my mind, like, is this the only way in which one can get that skill? Sure. And then the next, the next part, the next part about it um, is this idea that, and this is, I think, the, the major gap between, um, you know, pathophysiologic understanding of the body and real medicine, which is this huge gap between how do you handle decision making when there's uncertainty. And in pathophysiology, there's very, you know, everything they teach you about blood pressure and, you know, uh, flow volume loops and all these Mm -hmm. kinds of things. It's just so predictable, mathematical, you know, Mm -hmm. molecular cascades where you can always tell what's going to happen. And then you go in the actual clinic and you realize that so much of the job is weighing the benefits of working something up versus not working it up, mm-hmm. ca- talking to the patient, giving it a tincture of time, waiting. It's so much of the job is gray and ha- and managing risk over long terms. And that is something that, you know, I would love to see for explicitly taught rather than something that you learn kind of the hard way, you know, after years of doing it. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think in, in some ways it's like for me, I can, at least speaking from my own personal experience, having some clinical rotations under my belt, um, you know, it's like, how do you deal with that uncertainty and like what what makes you feel confident enough to move forward with a decision? I think part of it is, like, like you said, some of this basic pathophysiological training. But I think part of it is also, again, like knowing the bigger picture of what the epidemiology is, what the risks are. And, and I think that it's a different way to convince yourself, if that makes sense. Yes. Okay. So, you know, it reminded me of something that um, there's a paragraph that uh, I wrote a maybe now a decade ago, um, it says uh, about the encounter-based medical idea, it would be a disservice not to highlight what it would be philosophically the richest area within the new curricular strategy, coursework in uncertainty. Many elements of the doctor-patient encounter fall squarely under this heading, uncertainty in the accuracy of a diagnostic test, uncertainty in the efficacy of a treatment, and uncertainty among alternative strategies. How long should a patient remain on anticoagulation if it is currently untested? When should a neurosurgeon stop resecting the margins of a tumor? Uncertainty may become more commonplace both as technology outpaces our ability to evaluate it and as we move into the era of personalized medicine. Oh boy, even I was drinking the hype back then. Um, Sometimes uncertainty can be assessed by shared decision making, making transparent the doctor's dilemma and asking the patient to consider his or her values, but often uncertainty falls solely within the doctor's purview. Historically, physicians have appealed to pathophysiology in these moments. For the patient with an allergy to lidocaine in need of a local anesthetic, conventional wisdom is to rule out the amide class of drugs, choosing instead among the esters. The primacy of the basic science legitimizes this sort of reasoning, but it also demonstrates its insufficiency. In addition to selecting an alternative and being aware of cross-reactivity, a physician must also consider the specific response to the drug, the possibility of arterial infusion, particularly to the head and neck, the possibility of confounding substances such as latex. Although the best resolution to this question still lacks great evidence, coursework and uncertainty would provide a systematic method to this and similar dilemmas. And additionally, in for those cases in which no data exist, how should the physician proceed? What are the implications of the following strategy? The sicker the patient, the better to attempt an untested treatment. The healthier the patient, the better to hold off? Question mark. An interdisciplinary course taught by physicians, philosophers, and decision-making scholars has potential to foster clarity and consistency even in the most uncertain encounters. So that was kind of how I was thinking about it back then. Yeah. And I still think it's, it's a tough question. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's easy to say that pathophysiology is X and that we should do X. And I think that that's a kind of a simple way of thinking. And it would be nice to have a richer theory that incorporates these other kind of metrics in that thinking. Sure. Yeah, I think that's really, I would like to take that course. Um, I think what you said makes a lot of sense to me. 
where it's like you just feel better when you can explain what's going on mm-hmm. and and i think for many things that there is a correlation or there's there's some sort of association right, right? um but i just I, I i feel like that there should be other ways of thinking that are also honored or just as emphasized you know especially especially when i think when there's nothing there's no tested data right. for this particular circumstance or this particular um thing i think it's just so it's hard for me to be like okay at some point the pathophysiology will not explain everything about this person or or like it, or you'll make it fit because it makes it an easier story to like again comprehend i guess i'd say i mean i agree with you and i think i think you're kind of giving voice to something that i felt when mm-hmm. i was in your shoes which was a kind of a, a tumultuous mental thing which was that you're taught so often that the pathophysiology will guide you to the right answer and then you learn sort of so many times it doesn't and can mislead and can lead to the wrong answer and that you know dealing with these uncertain situations is not easy mm-hmm. and you know it takes kind of years of study and maybe you never do it right but anyway that's a question for another day yes well thank you audrey tran for joining us for questions from a medical student we'll be back in a future week with more questions I'm back with Sven Olsen for Question of the Week, Hematology Oncology Boards Edition. Dr. Olsen is busy playing with a paperclip, but it's still great to have you here on the podcast. Great to be back. I'm still paying attention. Oh, good. Well, I stopped paying attention a few questions ago. So, Dr. <laughs> Olsen, what do we have this week for our Question of the Week? Today we have something more surgical. Okay. I like that. But they do include these on our boards. Right, the answer is... Taking surgery. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. But it is what surgery? Oh, boy. That's a tough part. Yeah. No, the answer is all. Okay. Uh, so I have a 31-year-old male. He has hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer. This is a theme for the last few boy, questions. Boy, yeah. You've been drilling me these week after week with these um, genetic syndrome cases. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. So this 31-year-old male with HNPCC comes to your office to discuss the next steps of his treatment. He had a biopsy of a one and a half centimeter right cecal polyp, and the pathology reveals poorly differentiated invasive adenocarcinoma. He has mismatch repair protein analysis, immunohistochemistry, and he has loss of MLH1, and germline testing confirms MLH1 deleterious mutation. Oh, that's interesting. It's an MLH1, but they didn't move to uh, BRAF next, huh? That is curious. Yeah, so how would you have, yeah, on a prior on a prior episode of this podcast, you covered some tips here for how you'd approach this MLH1 somatic mutation. Yeah, well, they did the right thing in testing him uh, because he's a very young male and he has sure. HN, and he has HNPCC, I suppose they say that in the first part of the question, but uh, I would have done probably the MLH1 promoter uh, methylation analysis and BRF, mm-hmm. and then and then only if that yielded certain results, you would move to the uh, the germline testing. Okay, mm-hmm. good. Okay, so this is a person right cecal polyp, um, but the polyp's got it's got full blown poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma in there. It's got it's got basement membrane invasion. It's it's the real deal. Correct. So the question then is, he comes to you with this diagnosis of a cecal polyp that is confirmed adenocarcinoma, and which of the following surgical procedures is the most appropriate next step in the treatment of the patient the answers are a a right hemicolectomy b a total colectomy with iliorectal anastomosis c endomucosal resection or d total proctal colectomy with ileal pouch anal anastomosis 
Hmm. Okay. This is a good question. So it's a it's a, what happens when somebody who has known HNPCC develops a very very early stage colonic adenocarcinoma, and the options are right hemicolectomy, so just cut out the affected area, uh, total colectomy with iliorectal anastomosis, uh, just resect the cancer endomucal resection, uh, and the total proctocolectomy with iliopouch anal anastomosis. So I think right off the bat, the one thing to know here is that uh, it will be insufficient um, to just remove a part of the the genetically impaired organ. You don't need a partial colectomy, and you're certainly not going to get away with just resecting this um, as you might in somebody whose uh, uh, DNA repair is, 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 is functioning perfectly. Uh, so you're between the colectomy and the anastomosis and the proctocolectomy. And then I think the additional thing to know is that this is Lynch syndrome and not like something like rip-roaring long-standing ulcerative colitis. And so you probably don't need to remove, uh, you don't need the procto part of the proctocolectomy. The so rectum. You can, yeah, you can, you can keep the rectum. That's the, that's, that's the word I was looking for. Good. Yes. So then, I guess I'd say, I guess I'd say the total colectomy is the answer. Okay. Total colectomy with iliorectal anastomosis. I hope they do something after they do that colectomy. I hope they don't just leave it. Yes. So you that's are correct. You go okay. Good. You are oh, correct. Um, this one, you know, these surgery questions are challenging because unless you're in a tumor board, multidisciplinary tumor board, frequently, and you hear yes. these discussions, this is not something that we routinely look at or think about or study. We send them to surgery, and then it happens, and then we see, oh, great, they did this great surgery. So I think uh, this actually has data behind it. So uh, you must do a total colectomy, even if it's a small polyp confirmed cancer with HNPCC. Uh, there was a study of a, almost 400 patients with Lynch syndrome and colon cancer. The ones that got total colectomies had no recurrence of cancer, but the segmental colectomy, so let's say they did a hemicolectomy, they had about a quarter of those people that had an eventual recurrence of their cancer. And it seems that based on this, the authors had calculated a reduced risk by 30% of recurrence for every 10 additional centimeters of bowel resected in HNPCC. That was pretty impressive to see that number. That's interesting. But I guess that's that's that part is not surprising to me so much because, I mean, of course, they have a field defect. It's, a, it's, it's field mm -hmm. carcinogenesis. So the more tissue you leave behind, the more you have a propensity to develop the cancer what would be really interesting to me and i don't know if you know the answer is like among the people who chose step-by-step -step resection how many of them the cancer got away from our control so they couldn't be treated with a subsequent surgery but they actually had metastatic spread or something yeah i now, don't know the answer yeah to that. yeah but you see what i'm getting at which is like yeah, of course yeah. they're going to need another surgery at some point they've got field carcinogenesis right and you know while it'd be nice to avoid having to do uh you know iliorectal anastomosis and or have a ileostomy or something like that it seems like you should do it up front and you have to live with that yeah but ileorectal anastomosis at least is better than an ileal pouch i would agree or, with you there uh, you yeah ileostomy uh, keeping the rectum is good the other thing i think is is like and the other point is like how many times can you really undergo repeated abdominal surgical procedures with yeah. all the adhesions and all the complications that come? I mean, at some point you might think it's actually like maybe in the person's best interest just to get this over with. In fact, I think that's the, that's the answer. What I found curious is that they don't routinely recommend that you do proctocolectomy because you would reason that even for hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer syndrome, you know, colon cancer is in there, rectal is not in there. But I would have assumed that you'd have a risk of recurrence in your rectum as well. Yeah, I wonder, did the study comment on that? 
Well, if you have Lynch syndrome with rectal cancer, you are supposed to do a total proctocolectomy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the guidelines do not recommend doing a proctocolectomy if you have just a colon cancer. I think maybe here's here's the thinking. I don't know if I know if this to be true, but maybe one, this is something we can easily check with a flex sig. Mm-hmm. Two, the added morbidity of that additional procedure uh, in terms of a quality of life standpoint might be so much more that it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. It might be better just to be surveilled. Yeah. Uh, three, the risk of, uh, of, of relapse in that site might be slightly lower than the risk of the colonic tissue. Yeah, it could be. Those and are just my thoughts, but I don't know. It's all speculation. To contrast this with FAP. Oh, so yes, FAP. Is, so that the extent of surgery is actually not universal. Uh, it depends on the number of adenomas. And interestingly, one guideline I saw said if you have over 1,000 adenomas. Get the colectomy. But how do they calculate 1,000? Does someone sit there and count each individual little thing? I feel like in those cases, it's always <laughs> like, like the, I mean, obviously, we talked on a prior episode of the uh, picture on the boards, but yeah. it's always just like studded with like 30,000 polyps. I just want to know whose job it is to like leaf through that specimen and count the That's polyps. a pathology residence. Cool. Yeah. I'd like to see them do that. I'd like to see that too. So for the bottom line is for HMPCC colorectal cancer. If you have a cancer, you need the entire colon out. You can leave the rectum. If the rectum's involved, get the rectum out as well. That's FAP, good advice. It's not universal. That's good advice. That's interesting. Even even without any studies, one might kind of zero in on that advice. But the studies support that. What'd you say? For every ten centimeters, thirty percent risk. Yeah, thirty percent reduced risk. Reduced risk. Wow. All right. I like that they calculated that. It's a good metric. That's a that's a new unit of measurement. That's that a I'm, satisfying extra ten centimeters to snip out. Yeah, I mean, you're, yeah. you're getting a 30% risk reduction. Yeah. That's like, um, that's superior to the sort of the average 0.8 hazard ratio of oncology. You're, you're, basically, you're basically getting a revolutionary cancer drug with every additional 10 centimeters <laughs> of colonic loss. Yeah. Well, on that positive note, Dr. Olson, thanks for coming on the Plenary Session Podcast. Happy to be here. I'm back in plenary session HQ, joined via Skype with Dr. Jonathan Yeh. Dr. Yeh is a palliative care fellow at Johns Hopkins University, and he is joining us to discuss a new paper out now in JOP entitled, Has There Been a Shift in the Use of Subacute Rehab Instead of Hospice Referral Since Immunotherapy Has Become Available? And this is a paper that um, is titled with a direct question, but really hits on so many interesting things about the transition between inpatient oncologic care, where people go afterwards, and what happens to them ultimately. So thanks, Dr. Ye, for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so you you title your paper with a question, but it's really much more than that. Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll I'll give a little bit of a background, and then then let's jump in on it. But and tell me if I get any of this wrong. So I guess you had noticed at Johns Hopkins University that a lot of people coming onto the inpatient oncology service were being discharged to subacute rehab. And you wanted to know what happened to those people afterwards, what happened after they went to subacute rehab, presumably to, quote, get stronger. That was your question. Right, exactly. So the impetus for this study came out of our uh, social work group, who, uh, led by Luis Knight, who's an author on the paper as well. And they're really the folks that know a lot of these patients and the families the best because um, they're working with these families in hospital discharge planning. Um, They are ultimately making the referrals to these facilities. And so they had noticed over the past, you know, 10 years or so, an increase in the number of patients that were being sent out to uh, rehab facilities. 
And so the question came up, um, you know, I think we all know these patients, the patients that are functionally debilitated, they've been in the hospital for a while, they can't return home. And so the question came up, uh, what happens to the patients after they leave? Um, do they actually come back to the oncology clinic? Do they actually get further cancer therapy? And so that's, that's, the, that's the big drive behind um, this project and why we um, chose to undertake this study. I guess one question for you is, um, uh, is the percentage of people going to subacute rehab changing over time? So, for instance, for 100 people who come on your service, what percent go to subacute rehab? What percent go home? What percent go to hospice? Yeah, so the the more longitudinal data um, I don't have in front of me, I imagine our social group does. Um, overall, the number of inpatients, you know, in, in our inpatient units um, has gone up slightly. But I will say that the percentage of patients that's being discharged to to rehab facilities is increasing overall. Um, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, um, but it's it's definitely increased out of proportion to the overall number of inpatients on service. I see. Okay. Yeah. So um, so it is increasing overall, and we all anyone who's ever worked on an inpatient oncology service. Uh, will will understand that there are some people in whom uh, you know you send to a subacute rehab, and yeah. and that is almost always done with the promise, the expectation that many of those people will get better and pursue some subsequent anti-cancer therapy. Right. Because if the idea was that they would go there um, without the expectation of pursuing future therapy, then arguably they would perhaps best be served by pursuing something like a home hospice or or even an inpatient hospice facility, depending on on, on their particular needs and, and social support. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's ex- exactly right. Um, so I think... You know, the the punchline of this study really was that the numbers are, are still pretty dismal when you look at all folks that are discharged to subacute rehab. Um, you know, we had a group of 358 unique patients, and half of them were deceased or readmitted before they were ever seen in an oncology clinic, if they were at all. And then only one in three got any kind of further cancer-directed therapy um, at any point after being uh, discharged. That includes palliative um, chemotherapy and radiotherapy, um, and you know we have pretty high 30-day you know readmission and um, mortality rates as well. So I think when I look at this entire set of data, you know it really makes me ask the question: you know were all these patients aware of these sort of outcomes when they made the decision to to go to subacute rehab? Um, you know, do we are, are we counseling patients and families the, the correct way about about that choice? And, you know, what are the implied thoughts and biases that go into that? I think people go to rehab because they expect to get stronger. They expect to make it home eventually. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, they expect to keep treating their cancer. But we see that's, that's not the reality for a lot of patients. So I guess one of your major findings is that 51% of people um, do not ever go back to the oncology clinic. They either are readmitted or they pass away uh, before the chance of even going back to a con- cancer clinic. Yes, exactly. And, and of that 49% that do go to oncology clinic, you're saying only a fraction of them, roughly one in three people, get any further anti-cancer therapy. Uh, it's one, one in three of the total study population. Mm-hmm. So it is um, – I would have to break the numbers down a little bit, but it's, it's a fraction of the patients that go to clinic. It's probably closer to half or two-thirds of the ones that wind up in clinic. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. but, but I guess – and you're quite generous in terms of what counts as anti-cancer therapy because somebody yep. could be getting um, palliative radiotherapy for a painful humerus metastasis, and you're giving them credit. Yeah, the single fraction, you know, short short course radiotherapy. We 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 chose to count as cancer-directed therapy. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah. um, uh, the fraction of people getting uh, truly disease-modifying therapy is probably even lower than that. Yeah, that's fair to say. What I think shocks me the most is that one in five people are dead within 30 days. Of the people who are dead within 30 days, only a third were referred to hospice prior to death. Yes. Yeah. When you look at something like this, someone who is skeptical might say that this appears to be the case of subacute rehab facility taking place instead of an honest conversation. Instead of somebody on the inpatient team telling somebody, realistically, um, it is unlikely that you will ever be fit enough to receive the next therapy. Realistically, mm -hmm. what might be best for you and your family is is to think about how we can pursue comfort and and how we can pursue a death on your terms. Um, yeah. Instead of having that conversation, it is so much easier to just say, oh, let's just send him to rehab and to kind yeah. of kick the can down the road and to not do that work. Does Do you right. feel that way when you look at this data? I think that's a... Uh... Yeah, that's that's a uh, a fair way of interpreting it. I think you know, as somebody who worked on inpatient oncology units very recently as a as a medicine resident, um, you see this all the time. I think it is a it is a product of that being a, a difficult conversation to have, as well as you know what the what the default um, route of action is, which is just to focus on the medical things, you know, leave it up to the physical therapist and the social worker to figure this all out, and. Um, you know, they go to rehab, so you don't have to worry about them, you know, whether they can cope at home, what their support system is, you're just transferring them to their facility via ambulance. There's this element of, um, I guess, I don't want to say apathy, but there's an element of just letting things happen, you know, by default. When in reality, I think uh, what's really needed sometimes is to look at this data and to sit down with patients and families and say, look, you know, as your doctor, I'm really worried about you. And I know that, you know, the outcomes after you leave the hospital in this condition are going to be poor. So let's have that conversation about what can we do? What's our plan A? What's our plan B? What's our plan C? And more importantly than that, what do you value and care about, right? Um, what are what are your goals if we know that at some point the can focusing on the cancer is not going to be the right thing? At some point, it's going to make more sense to aggressively focus on you and on keeping you comfortable and focusing on your symptoms. Um so that, that sort of uh, conversation, I, I do think, needs to happen more honestly, and I'm hoping that this type of data can you know, be, be one more just uh, thorn in the side to get people to have that conversation. I think many things in this paper are interesting. I'm probably going to pick your brain about a few of them. But one thing that jumped out at me is something mm -hmm. that you show in Table 2. In Table mm -hmm. 2, you're looking at the people who are being discharged to subacute rehab, and you're noting that some of them had a palliative care consult while they're in the hospital and others did not. And what you note here is whether or not you had the palliative care consult, was there a difference in your code status at time of discharge? One of the things that jumps out at me right off the bat is that 75%, three out of every four people in this situation is a full code status on discharge. Only one in four is a do not resuscitate code status. Right. And and you show with a nominally significant p-value that by having a palliative care consult or people in whom a palliative care consult is obtained, they have a higher rate of do not resuscitate. The ratio is different. But what jumps out at me is that even in that group, the ratio is two out of every three people are full code status. Yes. I guess what I want to say is that the right code status for any individual is what that individual would want 
when they were really perfectly apprised of what the benefits and harms of a code, you know, it, or, or resuscitation are, you know, if they really understood what resuscitation means and they want it, that's the right answer for them. But I guess what I would say is one thing that concerns me about this data set is that one might wonder that if, if any of these patients were to experience a cardiopulmonary arrest, the probability that they would be able to be successfully resuscitated and then receive anti-cancer therapy that kind of prolongs their life, it, it seems to me that that would be a very, very low probability. And, I, and you, I would even wonder if you could look at, you know, of the people who had a CPR event, what was the percent, you know, 30-day survival? I suspect it'd be close to 0% in this cohort. Do you know that? Yeah, uh, it is pretty close to zero percent. Um, I don't know the exact number, but certainly very low. Yeah, mm. I see what you're driving at, which is that you know um, definitely when it comes to code status and a lot of these uh, aggressive interventions, um, this is not the cohort where you're going to have a lot of success. I think um, you know there's a lot of ways to look at that table. I think that um, obviously we're not um, necessarily saying that palliative care consults lead to um, higher you know, DNR status per se, um, you, there's certainly probably in-group differences between those two groups. Yes. But I think that the point stands that this is a group that is in you know dire need of honest conversations. Whether or not that necessarily involves code status, is a, I think, is a separate point. I think you can have you know perfectly reasonable goals of care conversations and come up with um, care plans that both respect the patient's values as well as the medical reality and not even necessarily touch on code status until the very end. I think code status kind of flows from all of that. Um, but I do think, uh, you know, I think what we're trying to say here in this table is that this is definitely a group where you, you can see the need for any doctor, whether you want to call it a palliative care consultant or an oncologist or an, or an ethics consultant or whatever, what have you, um, there's a need for supportive care here. There's a need for an extra set of ears and eyes to sit down with the patient, spend some time talking about the medical course, and to see what their prognostic awareness is. Like, do they really understand what has happened in the hospital, what has happened with their entire cancer course, um, and do they understand what's going to happen uh, coming down the road in the near future? So I think I'm biased as a palliative care consultant. I think that's a you know our field is an excellent way to approach that. Um, but these are some fundamental you know clinical uh, skills that should be common to all internists and oncologists. I think. I agree with you there. I think that um, that these are skills that should be part and parcel of becoming any type of physician. When I look at these data, I think what jumps out at me is you know the fact that these patients are being sent to subacute rehab. The fact that so few are actually making it back to clinic and getting anti-cancer therapy, of which your definition is very lenient, too. You know, what yeah. is the fraction that's actually getting uh, anti-cancer therapy that will improve OS? It even must be a subset of that. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact that they're so often leaving the hospital with uh, a full code status, you know, knowing what I know, makes me fear that um, in the mind of the person and the mind of the doctor, there is a misunderstanding of what real um, prognosis is and what expectations are. That I feel like if, if the patient were really brought up to speed and really understood the disease as the doctor does, that these mm -hmm. choices would be different. I mean, I, that's, what I, that's, what I, that's what I'm worried about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's always the case. We kind of ask ourselves as physicians what we would want personally or what we would counsel our own family members about. And we try to um, 
think about it from a range of perspectives. Right. I mean, I do, I do worry. I, I think there is a information, you know, asymmetry between, yes. um, the different medical providers and other hospital providers and, um, what the patient and the family actually understand. Um, and so one of the big challenges is, you know, how do you build the capacity and build the awareness to go about addressing that? Because it takes more than just a palliative care service, um, you know, seeing a, a certain number of consults every day. And I, I think it takes, uh, you know, a certain commitment to walking with your patients and to um, making that a part of your daily clinical practice um, to say that that is a part of the work that is um, can be difficult, can be upsetting, but at the same time can be very uplifting and is a, is a fundamental part of our practice and our, and our, and our duty to our patients. Um, so that's a type of cultural change and sea change that I don't think data alone is going to, to solve. I, I think it takes a um, number of people on the ground who are practicing in that manner and helping to spread that through their institutions. I think your paper is incredibly well done. Like many papers, I think, that are really important, um, I, I think you did a great job. I also want to point out that I think what you're doing here is you're really describing what happens to people in a particular scenario. It's yeah. not it's nothing um, you know, it's it's not it's not like you're doing some super sophisticated machine learning or AI. You're just telling us what happens to people. And I think it's so important to see that. And I guess what I what I want to point out also is that isn't it strange that in this line of work, um, it is not often that we know what happens to people. I mean, mm -hmm. I attend on so many services. If you were to ask me of the thousand people who you admitted on, you know, one of the services you attend on in the last year, where did yep. they all go? What percent are alive now? What percent went to clinic? What percent got treatment? What percent? I wouldn't be able to answer these questions. Right. I mean, it's astonishing in medicine, you know, with our yep. age of electronic medical workers. This is, yep. It's not easy to get answers to these questions, is it? I mean, I, I want yep. to kind of you to talk about, I mean, it took, it took some work to get this information out of the charts, did it not? Yeah, yeah. It took a lot of data abstraction. And, um, you know, in terms of the longer term outcomes, you know, we, we turned to a lot of, um, you know, medical records publicly available death certificate indices, we, we had to really try to look hard at a lot of different sources to find out what happened to all these different patients. Because in some cases, you know, if they came here for a second opinion and their primary oncologist wasn't here, um, they people travel from all over to come here. And um, it's, it's hard figuring out exactly where they went and what happened to them afterward. But I, I think you're exactly right. Um, it, it It is challenging to sit down with patients and families who you know when they go home at night or they're there in the patient's room, you know, in the evening, that's what's on their minds. They're not really worried about, um, you know, exactly what their labs show or exactly, you know, which line of treatment they're on. They're, they're, wor they're worried about what's the big picture. Where is this all going in one month or three months or six months? And it's hard to counsel folks when you don't have that uh, information on you. And so I'm hoping that for this specific group of patients, which is a pretty sick group of patients, that we are contributing to that to that data set and to helping physicians have those conversations because now we have hard data where we can point at it and say, listen, this is, this is exactly why I'm so worried. It's not just, you know, uh, my clinical suspicion. This is actual data that we've seen out of a, you know, eight year period at Hopkins. And that should hopefully be the impetus for some honest conversations. Yeah, I think that's well put. And I wish we could get that data, you know, more readily and in a more, in, in, in a variety of situations. It would be so helpful 
from everything from, you know, when you get a consult call to, you know, what happens to the last thousand consults. Yeah. I, I, I think your paper was sort of motivated by this immuno-oncology question. I would have titled your paper this, what happens to people who go to subacute rehab when, when they leave the hospital? Um, because I think you really do a great job of kind of taking us through all of the, you know, the outcomes that happen to those people. I guess my final question to you is, what would you want somebody in the field of oncology to take away from your paper? You alluded to many things that I guess, um, you know, hope that they that they have more honest conversations with patients. Yeah, what, what would you want them to do knowing what you know now? So, you know, the, the way I put it is I, I, I really think that when we practice medicine, when we practice oncology or whatever it is, um, I see it as a responsibility and a gift that we get to walk with patients through very complicated disease courses where there's a lot of up and down. Um, there's a lot of different needs at different points in the disease course. I think anybody who's been in an oncology clinic can see that. Um, and what I hope people take away is that I think that you know the art of guiding patients through this entire process is just as important as the science behind the oncology. And I hope that the two can keep pace with one another. Um, I hope that people can find meaning and joy in having these conversations. These are not, you know, I, when I speak with the oncology fellows at our institution and when I speak with the residents and the trainees, what I really try to emphasize is that there's a certain level of, of joy and of um, dignity in providing these sort of conversations. These don't have to be difficult and depressing and stressful conversations. These, these are things that um, get better when you practice intentionally. These are things that get better when you know the science and you know the, the outcomes data. And you can really make a big difference in changing what somebody's going to experience in you know the final year or two or what have you of their lives, regardless of what their cancer is doing. Um, and there's no reason why ex excellent aggressive oncologic care can't happen simultaneously with aggressive symptom management and prognostic awareness building. So I think th these are all the domain of um, of oncologists as well as all all physicians. And what I hope people take away is that um, these are things that are in dire need of improvement, and that um, we can really make a big difference if we just practice intentionally those things I talked about. Dr. Ye, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think I couldn't put it better myself. Of course. Thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.